you know, I realized I've been around touring so much in these last, you know, this last year has kind of been an awakening for me. It's like, okay, you know, I've been under a rock in a lot of ways. So I kind of am enjoying pursuing other things, you know, because I, I got in this to write, to be a songwriter. And then it became performing became such a element of my existence. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Clarence Greenwood of Citizen Cope. How you doing? How you doing, man? What's going on, Eric? Thanks for coming on. Thanks so always like to start it similarly with, you know, did you start out two years old, guitar in hand, singing, like, where did it all start? Take me back to like, where are you from your childhood, so to speak? Quick answer is no, I didn't, I didn't start with a guitar and jumping around. I was actually born in Memphis, Tennessee. I only lived there for a short amount of time and then moved to Greenville, Mississippi there for a short time. But I moved to Washington, D.C., at five, six years old. So I moved to Northwest Park, upper Northwest section, and was kind of like, had kind of lived in that area of kind of the deep South. Also had my father's side of the family was from a rural part of Texas called Vernon. Mm -hmm. So where I was living in in Greenville at the time was kind of open, like an open farm type house, but it was like more, you know, there's a lot of open land and everything. It was just a house on a bunch of, you know, land that was... Were your parents musicians? Like, what what drew you to that? No, my mother, I think my mother was artistic. My natural father was probably a pretty good writer. My stepfather was into photography, and he was artistic and everything like that. So, I mean, there was music played around, but it was nothing professional. I guess my mom was a professional photographer for a little while, but she was more into communications and reading and writing and that kind of stuff. Took you guys to D.C.? My stepfather got a job at Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. Was he a lawyer or was he working just in the offices? He was an attorney. He was a public defender. Yeah. And it's a pretty, known as a pretty good, or very good public defender service in D.C. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very altruistic job, too. I mean, that's a tough job and a hard one to do, but it means a lot. Yeah, exactly. And so, okay, so take me through it. You end up in school. What are you in second grade in DC? You join in? No, the first grade was kindergarten. Okay. Then I went basically went between DC and Vernon, Texas in the summertime. There was a small town where my father's side of the family lived. So I would go there and he remarried. So I had stepbrothers and half sister there or sister there. And my grandparents, really my great aunt and uncle, raised my father were really you know big parts of my life and they were there so and then dc i went to public school and kind of learned a lot about the music of like chuck brown and other go-go artists and then also there was like a dc punk scene that was going on with like independent stuff coming out that was kind of all around i wasn't i didn't go to a lot of punk shows or anything growing up but i went to some go-go's i was like you know hip-hop came in kind of toward the end of high school so got it nice and so at what point did you 
end up, I guess, what kind of work did you do throughout school? Were you ever, like, did you have other hobbies or did you gravitate towards music right away? I played trumpet when I was in elementary school. They, uh, they, they would let you take an instrument home and that was at the time. So I was like, I thought the trumpet was cool. So I still think uh, I was like, all right, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and trumpet players were cool and they looked cool. So it was like, all right, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do that. But I don't think I really got the essence of the instrument. I was kind of read music and didn't really read the music. I was just playing it by ear. So there was some actually some good teachers. I had a teacher named Miss Maxwell at Lafayette. She was good. And then went on and started. A friend of mine had a guitar and was listening to like Neil Young records. And he, he showed me some chords and we started jamming when we were like 13 and stuff. But I wasn't good at playing the instrument. Like I didn't feel like I was one of these guys that could play everybody else's song like a lot of other people could. Wow. So I, I moved on and started writing poetry and, and all that kind of stuff. And essentially, you know, later on developed back into the guitar after the drum machines. But like to what answer the work that... What drew you to that poetry? Like that's, you know, not uncommon, but not common. Like did something specific drew you to writing poetry? Well, my great uncle, who was I was named after, was like really close to me and he passed away right after high school. And I went and stayed in Vernon for that that time. And, you know, just a lot of poems came out. And I was like, where did this come from? You know, oh, that was like kind of a, a genesis to that. And hip hop was coming around and, and I thought like drum machines were really cool. So I got, you know, some drum machines and, or a drum machine a little later, but, you know, and you asked about the work, like I, you know, did paper roots and stuff when I was seven and stuff like that. And then had a small lawn business a year out of high school. Nice. And I, uh, you know, like my junior year, I started buying and selling tickets to concert and sporting events. So I started like making good money while I was in high school. You know, I didn't have any bills. So. Yeah. Nice. And so you get out of high school and you went right after high school back to Vernon, you were saying? Yeah. Well, you know, just to help my great aunt and uncle. And then I went to a year and a half at Texas Tech which is a couple hours from them. And yeah. my great uncle passed away and my aunt was there and she passed away about a year later. So then I went to Austin for a year and realized that I wasn't going to do school. And I wasn't really a good student or a test taker or any of that kind of stuff, but had some really good experiences with some classes and some teachers in some writing kind of situations, which kind of brought a lot of confidence out in that aspect of me because I didn't feel like I had, you know, been you know heralded that way as a writer before and I, I got an opportunity for people to see what I was doing creatively so your teachers at Texas Tech really liked your writing that was a big yeah problem. there was one lady she was like you know Clarence you're a genius and I was like man I've I never heard that about myself it wasn't like an offhanded remark it was kind of like after I'd written some things and then also interpreted some like a William Faulkner sh short story and and kind of like just, you know, did a project on it and didn't really use many references, just kind of what I thought it was about. And yeah. she said, you kind of came to the same conclusions that people have been studying him for years and, you know, came to. So wow. she, she, really was, she was like really positive about my development in that. And I thought I like, I've, I've tried to find her just to let her know that I didn't end up in a gutter somewhere. So <laughs> you aren't <laughs> able to. Yeah, it was really hard to do, like all my transcripts, 
there's not much information on the who the teacher was. This out. Gonna, that'll be our follow up. We got to go find this teacher. Oh yeah, I know we got to. You had that experience with your writing teacher. You went back to help your great aunt. And funny enough, by the way, my great aunt and great uncle were like my grandparent figures in my life. So have that in common, which is cool. yeah. You know, some people don't understand that kind of dynamic. So when I used to be, you know, it was like it was a really close relationship, and yep. uh, so it, it it was. I'm I'm glad you understand that because yeah, you no, know, oh, your grand uncle, you're as upset as that. <laughs> Their, I mean, their relationship is literally what I idolize in terms of hopefully my relationship 50 years from now with my wife. Like they were, they passed away a few years ago, but they were, they were amazing as well. So that's cool that you have that. But yeah. so you go back, you get out of school, you now have some encouragement and confidence around writing. What happened next? So I went down and, and realized I wasn't going to be doing, you know, the school thing. Went to Texas and kind of had gotten a drum machine and then started to learn on a sampler. And just kind of just woodshedded in Austin in, in, a, in an apartment in South Austin at the time. And it was actually a little house that I shared with legendary Matthew Looney from uh, Austin. And <laughs> he's a known character who went to a million shows, turned me on to a lot of good music and, you know, used to make posters and everything. So it was like just hang posters for events. You know, he was like the guy that would hang the posters and get paid to do so for shows around town and got it learned a lot of stuff so i just started getting really deep into learning how to sample and make songs and stuff like that so i, I really didn't have any understanding as a listener of some of these songs like how did they how did music happen you know i didn't understand that whole idea and i started kind of listening to records and sampling records and kind of understanding a little bit about the foundation of like songwriting I guess. Like at what point did you decide, like, I want to be in music. I want to be a musician. I want to create songs. Like you were obviously doing poetry. You were a great writer and you had some confidence around that. But when did you go like this? I feel like is my life calling. Was it then or did it take time after that? Well, I think I'd done some demos there, but when I bought the sampler, I really kind of one of those look in the mirror moments and be like, you know, if, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to take it seriously, you know, because it's yeah. like, it was kind of a one a couple of times I've had to do that in my life and just to reaffirm that kind of commitment. And, and so I just learned it and I never, I guess was, I never kind of oversaw what I was doing musically or creatively. I never like, Oh, this is amazing. You know, I didn't really ever, you know, feel like that or, or feel the really need to even talk about it that much, but I was just really learning and woodshedding. So it was a good period listening to a lot of music. Got it. And so what was the next progression of it? Did you start to perform from there or what? what happened? I did. I did a couple little shows and I was doing more like spoken word, like lyrically more like almost like influenced by hip hop and rap, but I didn't have a flow. So <laughs> I can't even call it rapping. So I went up, I moved out of Austin and went back to DC and I started basically just doing demos and all that kind of stuff as I was and selling tickets. And, you know, during that time, and then kind of got deeper into it and was asked to be in this band called Basehead to do some touring. And cause I knew the samplers and stuff. And this guy, Michael Ivey, who's, you know, really, really amazing songwriter did some, did a record when his senior year at, at Howard university and, and, and kind of 
blew up kind of like independently and on media and, and, and a lot of end of year best of lists. And so it was kind of a, I got brought into that kind of like under his guys, as far as like learning the business, as far as somebody who had done it professionally, who started to do it professionally. So he kind of brought me in, in that sense where it's like, I, I didn't, you know, have any contractual obligations, but then it was like, you know, I could kind of benefit from learning what he was doing. Got it. And so how long were you with him? We did like a couple tours. So it was a couple years, did a couple records. So it wasn't even that long. And he decided to kind of go in a different direction as far as his life, just as, as far as like, I think he understood on a, on a real level, like what pursuit of entertainment was about, you know? So I think he kind of, you know, he was always a, a lot smarter than most people. So it was kind of, he didn't see the kind of trappings of the entertainment life as something that, you know, he needed in his life, I think. Got it. And so when that ended, what happened next? You got a little bit of the taste for it. You, I assume, made some money and made a living working for a couple of years on music. So, Yeah, I was actually, you know, it, it, it was really the experience that I gained. You know, I, you know, I definitely get, was able to, for the first time, get paid a paycheck to go and tour. You know, that was like, wow, you know, this is amazing. Yeah. And travel and all that kind of stuff, go to Europe for the first time. And, mm -hmm. So then that I came back and, it, and I had all these drum machines and stuff. And I remember actually after doing a record and that I was like, I can't even play my grandmother's song, you know, like, so, so it, without all this, uh, I kind of went into the, doing the guitar and vocal and songwriting thing, just from the guitar and writing perspective, and then melded it with what I knew in the studio stuff. So it was like kind of creating a whole new different environment for the type of songs I was writing, you know? Yeah, got it. And so did you end up once you left and did, when you went back to the guitar and stuff, were you by yourself or did you have a band at that point? Kind of how did that progress? I was just by myself. So I, was, I, I, I had a little efficiency apartment in DC on Fuller Street, nice. Mozart, Mozart Place. And it was like, luckily the neighbors were cool. I would, you know, sell my tickets during, you know, up until nine o'clock and then be there and then have all day to write so it was like a really and I'd wake up and it was across from a school and I hear these kids like playing in the, in the background so it was like a real you know when kids are playing in, in in big groups it's like almost like a screaming joyous kind of thing but also there's like these weird textures of of you know chasing all that kind of stuff so it was, it was like a good way to wake up in the morning to hear that so I was just just doing that for a while and then I kind of stopped selling tickets and, and really just concentrated on that. So I was like, I didn't have any kind of just barely just doing a few events and really felt that moment of where I used to value having like that financial security. I just, I was, I was like, I'm good without it. And it was, it was a good moment of discovery. And that's when I started doing gigs, getting a band together you know, I'd made the demos and then doing live shows with it and, you know, shopping the demos and all that kind of stuff. So were you just going as Clarence Greenwood at that time or how are you? I was, it was Citizen Cope 
And then it was, I was kind of going as, there was a decision I was going to make. It was like, who is Clarence Greenwood anyway? So I was thinking of going Clarence Greenwood at that point. That was decided kind of later to keep it Citizen Cope, but it, it was. Where'd that come from? Where'd, where'd the name Citizen Cope come from? Cope is my nickname. It's short for Copeland. And when I was just doing demos, I was had no really, I'd heard Citizen Kane, the movie. I hadn't seen it. And I was like, oh, Citizen Cope. <laughs> sounds like the name of my company it's like I, I wish i had some creative crazy story but this sounded good and this sounded good and yeah. it worked <laughs> like, <"Hawk." laughs> that's awesome exactly. um, Hawk. It, yep. you can't beat that yep <laughs> all right so you started putting a band together and then like did, with the live shows like were you, what size venues did you start with were you playing like small bars or where did you really start <laughs> Well, even before the band thing, I would just, even if I couldn't get a gig, I would play at a place and bring in a sound system, pay the guy that had a sound system, bring it in and just charge whoever yep. I could. And then there were a couple of places called the Velvet Lounge. There was a place I played called the Velvet Lounge. And then the 930 Club, I would get some opening slots there. There's a woman named Lisa White there at the time that gave me a couple of really good opening slots and, you know, got some write-ups in the paper from a local Washington Post guy, weekend section guy, and then started getting some more kind of buzz around what I was doing. And I was shopping demos at the, you know, sending tapes to everybody, calling everybody, not getting all the doors slammed in my face. And it was like FedExing people tapes and, you know, pretty much using the money I was making and the ticket stuff to try to push this and go in the studio. And, and so, I mean, I, I got a demo deal with Capitol Records to make a long story short. Somebody found it in an unsolicited pile. Got like $5,000 and made the tape and incidentally had a show kind of similar to the time. And, and a, another executive came down from Polygram Records and offered me a, like a proper deal. So I had like a record deal without a manager or a lawyer and kind of went up there to New York and you know, got on the train and they put me in a hotel and it, and then the people at Capitol end up hearing, you know, the demo deal that I did and they wanted to do it. And I ended up signing with them because I already had kind of signed a demo deal with them. So it was kind of put in their, you know, house. And, and so that record didn't come out and I did, made a record for them and I got dropped from the label. So I went on to make a uh, kind of spent a lot of the money that I'd got from the advance after taxes and had, had got a really cool place on 9th, 9th and O street in the alley and Shaw it was a converted carriage house. So it was like 2,500 square feet. And at the time it was like, there was a lot of prostitution and drugs in the area. So it was like really, it's like $800. I had this 2,500 square feet and I learned that I just sang out really loud. And, you know, I hadn't, I kind of had small space before sang out really loud and wrote a whole new record and went down to I felt like I had a hit song and I real quick just to clarify yeah. Capital signed you they paid for you to record an album never released it and dropped you but gave right. you but gave you the upfront part of the fee which I guess at that point they dropped you so they, they you didn't have to worry about them recouping it at that point either right right when they drop you or at least in my case they drop you but you get the advance right but you're not going to get the record put out. You're not going to get the promotion. You're not going to get the marketing. And I didn't get the record either. So they wouldn't give me the record that I made. 
So I had to write all these new songs and it was really a close record to me. So it was like a really difficult situation where I was like, oh, this is messed up because I have to write a whole bunch of new songs. And I thought I had some really big ones on this. Is it still shelved or did they ever (laughs) getting that back? I got that back. I got that, that record back. And so some of the songs that are on that, that are on the new record that I'm putting out right now are actual acoustic versions of those songs that never came out. So it's like kind of a cool story to the new record. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. And so you end up writing a new album in your 2,500 square foot place that you were able to get. Yeah. And so we're taking from there. And I've been listening to Outcast Records and, and there was this guy named Neil Pogue who had engineered and mixed a lot of the, the songs that I really liked and, and been involved in that. And I, you know, cold called him and I cold called uh, DreamWorks Records and basically the lady from that answered Lenny Walker's, his assistant at the time, or I mean, she's like an executive assistant, I guess. So this lady named Gail Pearson and I just, you know, Basically, I don't know what I said, but it was enough to get her to, she came in the in, in, in Lenny Walker's office, who was the head of DreamWorks at the time, and what was at Warner Brothers and had signed like Prince and worked with obviously Randy Newman, all the great acts, Neil Young. And she said, Lenny, I've never done this before, but you got to take this, this kid's call. And I uh, got on the phone and, and it happened after Capital. So I guess I was like, basically was like, you know, I got dropped already and I got the song. I'm a big fan of what, you know, Randy Newman's done and Lenny Mark, you know, Lenny and I just, I just needed to talk to him. And so she, I got on the phone and he gave me an, like 7,000 to go make this thing and a new demo. So it was like a demo deal. And I called up Neil Pogue, who'd done the Outcast stuff. And I, I felt like I had this song, If There's Love, It Could Be Big. And, and I'd written Salvation and love the way his stuff sounded. So he listened to my the stuff that I had and he's like, oh man, this could be really, really amazing. Come down. So I went down and spent kind of the demo money on making that. And I had if there's the song called If There's Love, which eventually got me the deal to the next level. So it was a, a great experience. So like something that kind of went from a real bad position kind of brought me to another level. And so tell me about that deal. Like what happened? What was the next step there? Well, actually DreamWorks got it and they were like, man, you know, we like it, but we don't know what to do with it. So we're not going to do it. So I had this like demo, but I could take it everywhere. So I knew I had this great thing. And even though they didn't get it. So I said, there was a guy named John Lachey who had worked at Warner Brothers and he's like, I'm going to shop this for you. So he shopped the record and got this kind of like point where like Island, you know, Def Jan, Leo Cohen and Jimmy Iovine and Interscope wanted to do it. And a couple other big labels at the time, like Sony and then DreamWorks heard about all of it. And Michael Goldstone who would work with like Pearl Jam and stuff wanted it. And I, I had kind of like, liked Lenny Walker a lot. Cause I, you know, I felt like they were a company that just had a really strong A&R vision for creativity, but they really didn't know how to market and promote. So it was a kind of, it was a difficult thing, but I signed with DreamWorks and did that first record. Okay. You did. How did it end up going? That record, when it came out, was a flop. So they, it was like, I, I got this great piece in the Washington Post written up and, and it was looking, but it, it just, the record didn't 
you know, DreamWorks, I think, had a hard time marketing, promoting music. So they were they they had these really prestigious executives there, but it wasn't really hungry. And then DreamWorks, like DreamWorks Pictures, is it the same company? Yeah, they had a record division at the time. So it was like Geffen, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and you, you know, they kind of pushed that it was going to be like there was going to be synergy between the music and the film and the television. And so it was kind of like looked on paper to be great. Mo Austin and Lenny Warnker were there, but I didn't know enough about marketing promotion at the time not to know. And it's weird because when you're signing a record deal, you're going from like obscurity to talking to two or three or four people, sometimes 10 people wanting to sign you. And the time is limited where you can make your decision. Right. So it's like you go from, you know, scalping tickets to getting a record deal. Right. Essentially what happened. Right. And you, you don't necessarily have, know what you're looking for. I mean, it takes a lot. That's in almost any industry, any profession, anything. Yeah. Until you've gone through it, you don't really know what to ask or what to look for. And yeah, I mean, I, I, and I've read all the books and been to seminars and obviously spent tons of time in the studio and making records and all that stuff was ready up, you know, but like that other thing, you know, that's a whole other ball game. So it was like, it was a really cool, you know, chance to learn and, and a good experience. And so you're the record flops. What is it? I'm curious, how does the label react? Do they blame you? Do they move on or do they say, hey, let's figure this out? Like, are they, were they a good partner, so to speak? I think creatively, they were like, all, you know, I had a, a guaranteed, you know, couple records with them. So it was, it was, I think they could easily drop me or whatever, but I felt, so I came back and I, I, I played him Sun's Gonna Rise and I played him Sideways. I kind of, this time I went to, to the West Coast and played it for some, some of the radio people mm-hmm. and I didn't get the kind of response that I thought it, it, it should have garnered, you know, even somebody said, you know, you know, that some songs are really great, but they're just not marketable when they heard sideways. So I was just like, all right, cool. You know, and that was at about the time that Santana had asked to use sideways for his record. Cause you know, I, I had, yeah, that happened. <laughs> well, he heard it sideways was done and he had heard it from somebody at the record label that was a Coke fan and knew that I had had, had a new record, you know, I, I was working on my new stuff. They asked me to submit something and my publisher at the time submitted it. And so it got submitted and Carlos really liked it. And, and then the president of the label liked it. And so for some, and his family really liked it. And it was weird because I was the only like no name artist to be on this record shaman because it was the follow-up to supernatural that sold a gazillion copies. And, and uh, so everyone was trying to get on this record and they knew it would debut like number one in so many different countries, which it did. So sideways made it on. It was like the only kind of artist that wrote and produced the song and, and performed it. And because a lot of this was like multi-songwriters. And Bullet and a Target, did that come out on that album you were working on that was supposed to have Sideways on it or was it? No, well, what happened was that was the, when I did this, the thing with, with Arista, we were kind of like, I felt so like being around that Carlos record, I felt like the energy of this new label and like Arista, LA Reed had just come there. It was like a big pop record label but also had classic stuff so all the you know all the 
Outcast stuff was on there, but they would have Whitney Houston and they had, but they didn't have anything like me. And it was kind of like a really, really perfect storm. And they were really into Sideways. They were even thinking of putting out as a single. And so it kind of made sense for me to ask to be released from DreamWorks to go over to Arista because I felt like, you know, because they were like, you really want to stay over there? You know, kind of thing. And I was like, no, not really. And I asked to be released. And I had another record come in and made the record for Arista. And that's the Clarence Greenwood recordings. And it was just a great experience making that record. You know, I had to, you know, give a nice piece of my advance back to DreamWorks in order to leave. So that kind of forced me to write, produce, and kind of the whole thing, you know, to produce the whole record myself. And so that was, you know, that record was great. And that that was a success, right? That came out did well for you. Yeah, that record did well. And the DreamWorks record end up coincidentally, you know, drummer has gone platinum plus already. And, you know, that record will eventually go gold, but they yeah. took it off the shelves at 15,000. So it's like, you know, it's huh. already, you know, it, since it's came out, it's close to going gold, which is, you know, 500,000 copies and yep. have it as a platinum single on it. And, and, and that's with no radio play and no no weeks in the billboard top 200 so that's like a consistent amazing you know expansion and then you know the clarence greenwood record came out the second record was going to be on ariston i had the whole team together and all of a sudden they were like this is going to be our you know we're going to push this this is going to be a a priority and then la reed got fired and the whole ariston staff kind of got let go with the exception of a couple people so that record never came out on Arista and it was moved to RCA records which was kind of like another situation where I had to kind of just you know it wasn't ideal yeah I'd go with it yeah. and how'd that do even through RCA were they distracted? Well, it just it just took a long time so it wasn't like they weren't going to put you know I, I, the politics are labeled like they had the artists that they had already signed so I kind of came in and there was people at the label that were kind of pushing their artists because if their artists do well then they end up you know getting promoted and stuff like that so that was one of the things and we didn't the same thing they didn't really go to radio on even the lowest form on those records. So, but what was beautiful about it is it like found its own life and we were able to, you know, get the buzz about that record out. You know, when I was still at Arista, they let me do 10,000 copies of the album and I gave up tons of copies out before the record came out of the whole album. Now it's when CDs were still happening and like, it was just like the best, best thing I could have done at that time. So I was just like, just really doing that and developing the live thing and, and figuring out how to do residencies and touring and kind of make myself label proof so that that after the LA Reed thing happened, I was like, oh, this can happen so many times. So let me make myself kind of like label proof as far as is that. What, what year was that like at that point when, when that all happened? That was 2004. Okay. So then, you know, I, 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 I built a the touring up and then did another record for them in 2006 and then basically went and started to do my own stuff on my own label. Got it. So you went independent around. Yeah. Today. Yeah. Nice. And so give around me the past- 2008. That's what I want. Okay. So give me the past 13 years. How's it been since? So it's been, you know, I've made these records. I don't, I haven't made a lot of them and I've been, you know, touring a lot. I just woke, you know, I realized I've been around touring so much 
this last year has kind of been an awakening for me. It's like, okay, you know, I've been under a rock in a lot of ways. So I kind of am enjoying pursuing other things, you know, because I, I got in this to write, to be a songwriter. And then it became performing became such a element of my existence. And so on that note, what's next? Like, where, where do you want to go? What I know you're coming out with an album, but do you want to keep writing, get into touring? You just mentioned what, what kind of other stuff are you getting into? Well, I've been writing and I've just been interested in the other creative side beside the touring stuff, because I feel like the music thing is there's so many limitations because of, you know, there's industries being built around our intellectual property and that we're not at the table. And then there's a lot of artists that really kind of don't feel that responsibility to be at that table. And, and so I'm kind of like just trying to take accountability for what's going on with all the different, you know, digital service providers and all the different things coming up right now that is being done. There's like a huge transformation of content and wealth and music yep. copyrights being done over the last three years and will be done over the next 20. So I'm kind of like want to be able to think about that for future artists and for past artists and kind of like also for myself just to be accountable for what's really, really going on and, you know, trying to figure out a way to be at that table. Yeah. When you see the Disney family private equity fund buying Taylor Swift's masters. Friend of mine, Tom Silverman has, you know, always been a pretty good legend in the hip hop space, but is buying tons of different masters and originals and the amount of money in music that didn't like 2008 was a rough time for the music business, but yeah. now it's back and it's a whole different game. And you're right. It seems to be transforming so fast. Paying attention to that with your background could be super interesting. Yeah, just seems like a lot's changing that. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's always changing. It just it's just basically there's so much to be made, but they didn't figure out how to how to make it. And I think other industries came in and knew knew what to do with it. And part of that is is that there was, you know, you gotta go with the founder. And and a lot of these people, you know, corporate record companies are doing businesses with, you know, doing deals with founders. Yep. And they're not really gonna win against somebody with their own kind of like dream and aspirations against somebody that doesn't have they're not protecting that for themselves so great part was, of that. i mean daniel eck is a great example actually even better is steve jobs he yeah. went to the record labels to build itunes originally they laughed him out of the room so he built it himself and then once they couldn't turn him down then he went back to him so yeah. something happened with daniel eck you know he was he didn't come to the U.S. for years because he built it overseas, where overseas licensing, they're like, whatever, go for it. And then by the time he came to the U.S., it was already a powerhouse. So, you know, that should have been Universal or Warner Music or one of these guys, you know, building that. But instead, you got a fun little party animal Swedish guy that builds this company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it should have been all of them working together because, you yeah. know, I think they should have all kind of figured that out. But then... You know, there's like they didn't have the tech element. And also, I don't know if they had the desire. It's like, I think they look at, you know, they're not trying, you know, it's not built that way. And I think that now the companies are looking at more investing in other forms of business, like companies are investing in technology companies and all these other things, which exactly. I find interesting. I mean, it's smart in some ways, but it's like, wow, it's like you're going to invest in that, but not invest in building the content you have to actually yep. maximize the content would seem like a lot smarter 
thing to do or it's investing in enough, that and something else. But I totally agree. I mean, it's the amount of people, and we talked about this a little bit offline in terms of like NFTs, which are great technology and seem to have a lot of interesting stuff around it. But I don't know anything about it. So I'm not personally investing. And the amount of people I see that don't know anything about it, but are jumping in, it's similar to tech, similar to crypto. A lot of people chase these gold rushes and think like, well, they made money in it. So if I put money in, so will I. And that's where people get hurt financially. Right, right. I think that there's always that mentality of going for something quick. Yep. And it's the same thing that brings people to the lottery and the casino. It's, exactly. just, it's just a little bit more higher stake money. <laughs> same emotional feel, that like rush of adrenaline. We're going to make it. I hope we do. That's yeah, yeah. not the buy, not the sell. That's the funny thing. It's putting the money down is where people get the high. It's not whether they win or lose. The high is on when they put the money on the table. And I'm not just talking about casinos. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So last question for you. What would be a piece of advice to someone trying to pursue their dream, whether it is music or whatever it is, art, et cetera, someone that really, you know, has that passion, wants to get there. What would be the one thing that you think they maybe haven't heard, but should? I think the most productive time creatively and like spiritually. And when I did the best stuff, I, I, I was able to listen to and follow my first instinct. And, you know, a lot of times that first instinct once you start gaining a little bit more success that there's a lot of people that will give you their opinion on that first instinct. But like, if you're able to be in a place where you can practice that to start and kind of develop that instinct to go with, that's really important. And, you know, finding kind of some kind of mentorship, whether it be, you know, financial, somebody telling you, put IRA up or figuring out that even if you don't make any money, figure yep. something like that out and just have accountability for what you're going to do as far as, you know, the business and the creative. And that's really the most thing to make what you got really, really good. <laughs> if, you, if your product, your music, whatever it is, is really yeah. good and everything else comes pretty easily. Yeah. And I think it's like, and put your heart into it and, and follow something you love. Well, Clarence, this has been awesome. Thank you so All much right. for coming on Hawk. Thank you, Eric. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.